Are you ready to dive into the world of energy and innovation? Then look no further. SPE's annual Technical Conference and Exhibition, or ATCE, is just around the corner. Get ready for an experience that will fuel your curiosity and ignite your passion for the energy industry. Don't miss out on this incredible event. So mark your calendars for October 16th through the 18th and join us in San Antonio, Texas to explore the evolving energy landscape with the industry's leading innovators. Visit ATCE.org to learn more. Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to SPE Live pre-ATCE series, HSC and Sustainability, Tangible Pathways. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on September 18th, 2023. And now your moderator, Philippe Hervé. Welcome to this SPE Live pre-ATC series on HSC and Sustainability tangible pathways. My name is Philippe Hervé, and I'm the director at PG Energy, a consulting company that focuses on oil and gas technology, energy, and business development. Today's SPE Live will last 30 minutes. This event is an introduction to the special session of HSC, on HSEC, which will take place at ATCE in San Antonio on October 16. We have two speakers today, one from each part, and um, in ATC in San Antonio, they will be joined by leaders from the largest operating company. I encourage you today to ask questions as soon as possible, and while our speakers are answering uh, the question I will have for them, we will answer as many questions as possible from the audience in the time we have. It is my pleasure to introduce our guests. Wafik Bedoun is a director for America at IOGP and promotes his, pra his practice in upstream operation and in the low-carbon energy transition to IOGP members. Wafik's extensive career includes being the president of CEO of Total Energy Research and Technology. We also have today Dar Darcy Spadi, who is a managing director at Carbon Connect International, a Calgary-based company that specialized in emission reduction, training, baseline measurements, quantification, and decarbonization implementation. Darcy was most notable for being our president in 2018. Rafik, Darcy, welcome to this SPE Live. Good morning and welcome. Good afternoon, good evening. Something? Yes. <laughs> well, good morning and good afternoon, yes, to all of you. It's a pleasure to be here. And we have the pleasure of having Wafik and Darcy both in the same room today in Calgary or somewhere in Canada, at least. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so let, let's start because we have only 30 minutes. And um, I would like to ask a question on sustainability and carbon emission and, and maybe Darcy with your background, you're the best position to get started also. I'd love to hear what fix uh, thought on this one, but um, how can the oil and gas industry effectively balance its energy needs with the imperative of achieving net zero carbon emission by 2050? What innovative strategies or technology hold the most promises in this journey? That's a big question, Philippe. And by the That's way, thank I'm you asking for you. <laughs> Thank you for hosting this. You know, I, when I first met you, you were getting involved in the data side, and this was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I don't know. So you are the expert on the artificial mm -hmm. intelligence and data side. Uh, how can the industry 
deal with this? And, and this is a huge question, a huge issue. I have to step back and I say, we have no choice, actually. Um, the public needs energy. Energy poverty is real. And we're the experts. So I think we must, we must have a solution. And we must have, while we give the solution, we must build the perception that we're helpers and not hinderers. And uh, Wafik and I were both at, at the opening ceremony of the World Petroleum Congress last night. And how many people from our federal ministers in Canada to the local premier to the, the head of WPC, everybody's talking about the same thing. But we're the doers. So how, how do we effectively balance the energy needs? I have no idea, but we have no choice. In, in my opinion, we have no choice. Wafik, what do you think? I, I can't agree more. Um, we're a group of engineers, and what we need is to convince stakeholders at large. And so I think it's a complex situation. I'll share maybe um, an experience I had in mid-2000. Um, my first CCS project I was involved in. And uh, we wanted to inject CO2 and monitor CO2 in a depleted reservoir. Uh, this reservoir produced during 50 years gas that contained H2S. Mm. Mm. So it's in France. And so we made the case uh, and we had to convince the society uh, about uh, that project. So uh, we had a lot of resistance and they were concerned that the CO2 we will be injecting will seep and start going through the seal and the subsurface reaching their vineyards. So the vineyard guys were concerned saying, you're going to kill all my crops and I won't be able to produce. And we were telling them, can you imagine you had 50 years of H2S and we contained that and now we're just injecting. So uh, the whole point here is let us not underestimate the effort it takes us to convince the stakeholders at large that are not engineers and that we need really to understand how they're looking at these kind of challenges. I'm going to moderate in Philippe's spot. Do we need to convince or, we, or do we need to be? We need to be better, more holistic citizens. I, I think the experience is we need to get out of our engineering mindset box. Exactly. Understand what, where they're coming from, yeah. analyze, and probably it's very uh, bold, but imagine we are hired by them to prove that Mm -hmm. It is something that's worthwhile for them. Mm -hmm. So it learned a lot. I think it's rational. Being more rational won't help. It's not the point. No. It's understanding them and not just convincing them by our arguments. We need to understand their arguments mm -hmm. and, and go through that. Why now? He says on the label contains sulfites, right? So it should help. Thank you, Wafik um, Andarsi. Very good um, answer to the first part of the question. Maybe, can, do you have something you want to say on, on the innovative strategies on technology, which are really promising at this point of time? I mean, what are you seeing on which really seems to be um, happening today that, that is changing how, how fast we can progress on, on this objective. 
you know, as an industry, we have proven that we can handle technology. Uh, I think if you take a look back and see the kind of technological innovation we've had um, over the years, we are we are the best. And and so if anybody can handle this using AI or any sort of data usage or or skill usage, we're there. We're SPE members are energy experts. So I have great faith, maybe not in me and my age group, uh, but but I have great faith in new SBE members. They will they will actually figure out the technology. I've never seen it not happen, from horizontal wells to multi-stage fracturing to uh, control devices to downhole deep sea depths like water depths. We we've done it and we've done it quickly. Yes, yes, I think. Yeah, and again, the, the, the issue about technology and the use of technology is quite complex. We have the technology evolution from, let's say, going from a experiment, pilot, and then you prove the concept and things like that. And so, and standards and regulation. So, it, there's a whole suite of uh, uh, criteria to, to validate the technology. Uh, I think uh, for IOGP at least, and IOGP, I didn't mention that, this International Association of Oil and Gas Producer, it's a community of practice, of best practices uh, on topics that include energy transition. And we've been working a lot on CCS mm -hmm. uh, and on methane and uh, any kind of flaring and control. And so we've been coming up with such good practices on CCS. It's a technology that is again going to be instrumental, not only to capture the CO2, but even when we want to generate blue hydrogen, mm -hmm. there's a lot of CO2 mm -hmm. that's uh, emitted. So we need to capture them. So CCS seems to be one of the technologies. I think that the industry could have a big role in, in, uh, scaling it up. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you so yeah. much. Um, and and Darcy, you spoke about artificial intelligence, you know, you know that I like that. So um, let me go with a question on, on AI and um, HSSC. So what I'd like to know, and maybe um, what we could be best to get started on the answer, but, but um, I look forward to both of your thoughts on this one. So artificial intelligence has been touted as a catalyst for improving health, safety, security, environment, all of our objectives. Um, how is the industry really viewing AI to accelerate incident prevention and safety enhancement? Where, where do we stand today? So it, undoubtedly, AI is having an impact, a huge potential also, uh, on our sector and other industries. So it's already showing its uh, capabilities. Uh, NIOGP, uh, our members have been working in the digitalization of, uh, of our processes, our IOGP process for some time. But in January of this year, uh, we kicked off a digital transformation committee, DTC to derive really the foundational elements on analytics, machine learning, AI, hmm. that moves us forward as an industry towards a collective HSSE enhancement. So safety in particular, and safe sites is the first topic that we're, mm -hmm. we're considering is a key focus area for AOGP. 
and uh, the DTC committee derived recently a safety roadmap, mapping three horizons. The horizon one is what we have today. Uh, horizon two is what we see as emerging and horizon three is what we could be disruptive. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we're again working collectively as an industry. For, for instance, machine vision for risk and hazard identification is in horizon three. But we know that some of our members consider that in horizon two. But as a collective uh, group, that's where we map that kind of roadmap. And I'll talk more about it on, uh, on our panel on uh, October 16. But I'm trying to show you that IUGP is one part of the puzzle of AI use uh, in uh, the oil and gas industry. There's a lot happening by our members uh, also. And so it's a collective type of approach where there's competition on the operator side when they go ahead and they develop these kind of the technologies from IOGP. It's more uh, a collective a cooperation mindset. Yeah. <clears throat> so this this artificial intelligence discussion, um, this is so relevant because as petroleum engineers, are we are we data people? Should we get an, a degree in data management and then a, a minor in subsurface engineering? Are, are we petroleum engineers or are we data experts? Uh, this is a tough question. I don't know which comes first. I think being petroleum engineers or energy experts is first, but the, the next generation has to be data experts. The, the, the data expertise is so critical. And uh, I like what you said about the three horizons. Mm -hmm. I mean, th this is, th it gets so in depth. And when I started petroleum engineering, you know, I kind of liked it because nobody could prove your work. You know, we think the reservoir is doing this, therefore we'll build this. And if it responds this way, we must be right. But with the amount of data analysis available, we now have to have better answers and we can have tighter and tighter zones tighter and tighter safety criteria and grind more with AI, we can be way better, but we have to be data experts. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is really fitting. And I think we are going to embrace um, this technology more than any other industry. And I think we're going to do very well providing energy to the world for that. So you're asking the question, I should be asking them, they're asking questions. I'm going to provide the answer instead of asking the question, because you <laughs> on the one you ask on, on artificial intelligence and, and whether we should be um, domain experts or data experts, I'm 100% convinced we need to have domain experts. Uh, artificial intelligence is a tool which is booming right now, but at one point of time we learn how to use mechanical engines and at one point of time we learn how to use computers and we learn how to use excel and powerpoint and now we got ai just the next tool which we need to absolutely to learn how to use but unless you have your domain expertise and you know what you are speaking about you are going to be irrelevant or misguided so so don't ever forget to be a domain expert that that's where you're you're bringing real value to the company um, let, let's switch a little bit on collaborative approach on, and I know Wafik, you're doing a lot of work in that area with IOGP. So um, we have a lot of um, very ambitious goals to achieve uh, net zero carbon emission on HSCC improvement. And that requires collaboration between industry players, policymakers, academia, the public. So how, how do we 
fosters this environment to ensure there's collective progress toward these goals. I mean, what is IOGP doing or what, what should the industry be doing um, in order to achieve that goal? There is a big project in uh, SP called the Gaia program. And I think this is a, they have tried a lot uh, of different ways to engage different stakeholders, bring them together. And I think there's a lot of lessons learned from, from that. And I think it's important to get the most uh, influential stakeholders in together in the room and trying to address that. And it goes back to experience I, I had in the early 2000 uh, with that kind of environmental licensing. I think it's not clear to the global stakeholders that we're part of the solution. Uh, we believe so, but we need to, to demonstrate it uh, in different ways. Uh, and so engaging with authorities is key. I think uh, policymakers in particular, they would call us lobbyer, advocacy, things like that. But it's part of our role to explain what we're doing with the data science-based type of arguments and hear criticism. We need to be able to hear criticism and come back and try to address them. Um, in, in the example I was saying in CCS, we needed to demonstrate for the vineyard owners to guarantee that during 50 years, no CO2 will go up in their vineyard. How, how do you guarantee that in the future? So we had to explain the risk analysis. It took time, it took three years to convince them. So that's, I, I think it's a long term. It's a complex for one industry to tackle alone. Uh, we are doing a lot in engaging with uh, regulators, policymakers in Europe in particular, mm -hmm. in the Americas also, but in Americas it's more uh, fragmented by country, but it's a long-term uh, endeavor. I don't know, you have some experience too. Yeah, policy policy is so important. And one of the th one of the differentiators in our industry is you have different ownership of resources. So in a lot, most countries of the world, the crown or the government, in our case, we call it the crown, uh, owns the resource. So it's easy for the government who owns the resource to tell the national oil company or the operators when they sell them the rights, you have to do this and here's the policy. Mm -hmm. It's a little tougher if the resource is owned by freehold or landowners because their interests are not the same as a government entity. But I think in all cases, policy, 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 to have good policy years ahead, decades ahead, we're achieving amazing methane reduction goals here in Alberta because we started on policy 15 years ago. So it's collaboration, it's use of data, but it's building good policy from the political side. So good luck with that, us. <laughs> Thank you. Very interesting um, feedback. Um, we have actually a question here from uh, that came in uh, through LinkedIn from Amin Amin. And so the question is on the screen, but all on gas majors are stepping into the direct air CO2 capture, which, which you just spoke about, uh, Rafik. Um, how critical is this to uh, reaching 2050 net zero objectives? Is this an oil and gas technology or just a business initiative? Okay, I appreciate that. I mean, um, I think there are several CCS technologies. Direct air capture is one. 
There are members who are investing heavily on it. Mm -hmm. It's worth trying. Mm -hmm. uh, there are others, I think. So at this point in time, I think, it, and it, it's dependent on regions, on the proximity to the CO2 emissions. Uh, also, uh, cost of power. Cost of power. Uh, it could be deployed anywhere, but one needs to know that the percentage of CO2 in air is very low. Mm -hmm. Very, very low. So you need, mm -hmm. I, I don't remember, it's under 1%, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, even 1,000s, but it's a very small amount. So it, it requires a lot of uh, capture or uh, from air, but it is a technology that needs to be piloted, and that's what uh, some members are doing. I would just echo and say to Afik's answer and say, all of the above. Mm -hmm. We are energy experts, we're petroleum engineers, the world wants to hear about energy transition, all of the above, whether it's CCUS or methane reduction or direct air capture or some guy with sticky gloves getting CO2 out of the air. I don't care. All of the above. Let's be, let's be good scientists. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I still encourage our audience to, to ask more questions. Uh, we'd love those ones when they come in. Um, let me go with, with my next question, which is a um, question on ethical and regulation considerations. Uh, and that's yeah, a bit of a tricky one, but as we harness the potential of artificial intelligence and uh, innovative technology, what ethical consideration should guide the adoption of these tools in the realm of sustainability and HSSC? How can we ensure that AI aligns with both industry needs and broader societal values? That's that's a tough one, and I think we have to start we have to start with the data. So I started my career after university in the logging world, and you know logging data is really important and and does a lot of things. And that data was protected, and in various jurisdictions protected or shared in different ways. And I I, I think we can concentrate on protecting data, and I, I'm going to worry less about the ethical part because I think that comes first of all who owns the data and whose right is it to use it. So we start with the things we know and we can do well. Um, and, and to me, that, that is the use of data. Every oil and gas operator wants all the data for themselves and nobody else ever. Every jurisdiction wants the data for everybody and not uniquely to the oil and gas operator. First, we make sure the data is fairly held and distributed and then, and then go from there. And the, 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 you know, the ethical considerations are more of a data industry thing down the road. Uh, as far as individual data, um, people's data, if you will. I, I think we need to concentrate on who's the critical technical data is and the rest will flow. Maybe that's a callous answer, but man, we can fight over data. <laughs> Any comments? No, no. Uh, I second that. I think um, we need to test. There's a lot, the whole and your transition will involve a lot of experimentation. And AI is one perfect tool to learn, experiment. I mean, the whole machine learning is, is that you need reliable data. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of lessons learned from using data and finding out that uh, the AI doesn't know how to distinguish uh, even an X-ray mm -hmm. and things like that. So with machine learning. Uh, so, yeah, I think the experimental phase, we need to understand technologies need time to mature. And we even have TRL scales, technology readiness levels is one example of maturity that NASA used 
to to again put stages in how the technology matures. You will not use a technology commercially if it's not in TRL, say seven, eight, or nine out of a scale of nine. Yeah. Uh, so there are risks involved. Uh, policy needs to be written not too early because you need to test. So I think the whole, I mean, f- to answer a bit your question, Philippe, I would say experimentation, having more pilots is key to making any kind of AI technology robust to uh, uh, address uh, some of our issues in, in, in the industry. Thank you so much. Um, we actually have a question coming straight from the field, from a rig. And um, so, you know, you're being listened by people over the world and, and even at the rig side, they're listening to you guys. Um, and and so what, what our people in the field are asking is a question on the data analyst uh, work and, and the difference between working on memory data and real-time data. How do you compare it um, you know, the, a lot of the work in the field is done on memory data because maybe real-time data is not yet fully available. Um, I thought we were more advanced, but it looks like we still have a lot of memory data. How, how do you compare memory data from real-time data? Uh, you guys have any information on this? Anything you well, want I'll to speak about? I'll start while Wafik's thinking. Uh, he'll have a better answer ultimately. Um, you know what? We're from the Society of Professionals in Energy. That that stands for SP, doesn't it? And 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 because we're professionals in energy, we understand data data well, right? Right? Rightfully, and and data's always coming from somewhere. Well, worse than memory data is estimated data. So to me, the question is about memory data versus real time, and we'll get good at that. We'll get good at, at converting memory data to real-time data. That's because we're professionals in energy. But worse than that is the estimated data before even the memory data, before even the real-time data. So I'm in, a, I'm in a part of the industry now where we're talking about methane emissions, and it's largely estimates. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask each of you, when you're driving down a highway, you estimate how fast you're driving. Is that correct? I don't think so. So we love to double estimates or half estimates. We're seeing in methane data that it's twice. It's a factor of two. We're either half or double. Mm-hmm. So first of all, we go from estimates to memory or collected data to real time. I think we'll get there, but it's going to take a few iterations. No, okay. completely. I think, <laughs> Natalie, thank you for your question. So um, how do you compare it? I think it's a process. We're still in that experimentation. We start with memory data, what we have. Dealing with real data requires much more uh computer uh power to be able to analyze real data and on the fly trying to have analytics done um you need to remove the outliers data that are not uh, considered as representative but i think it's uh, we will be heading there like uh, driveless cars it uses real data in real time and it has to take decisions so i think we're getting there we're getting there but i think we should tell uh H&P rig 549, that rate of penetration isn't everything. Good hole conditions are important. So just yes. remember that. Very good. Thank you so much, guys. Um, another question that I have here is on um, technology integration. And um, in the pursuit of sustainability, how can we integrate 
renewable energy sources like wind, solar, energy, energy storage, um, combine those as, as you know in, in as a tool in technologies that are like CCUS in order to pave the way for a more efficient uh, energy landscape. Um, what are the challenges and the opportunities um, that are available to us with this type of integration? We have two minutes left. We better hurry. I, I think that's, again, another data challenge. The power operators, the system grid operators, we have some brownouts from time to time. We have people freezing to death in the winters because they can't get their energy. So I, I don't know the exact answer, but I would suggest we as energy experts need to solve this and solve it quickly. Yeah, I, I would just add, it's the way I see it, it depends on the energy mix. That's it's very regional, local. That kind of integration will occur depending on what locally you have. If you have more wind in a place, mm -hmm. you would more focus on wind and maybe other sources that uh, can address the uh, trilemma. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's very important. So, yeah, it's a regional challenge. We cannot have a global solution uh, for that. It depends. People, places who have more solar, they'll favor more photovoltaics. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but I think it needs integration. Yes, we need to shift to more low carbon uh, emissions or technologies. So, yeah, that's the idea is to have more that kind of balance of energies wherever we are in the world. Tied with good data. Yes. Good data. Yeah. I like your comment, Wafik, on local versus global. I think there's a lot of, you know, low cost, um, maybe not low cost, but low, low, low hanging solution that, that we could capture by looking at, at what's available locally and, and, and then expand from there. So, so absolutely agree with you there. Um, once again, I would like to thank our audience and thank our speaker for, for this wonderful um, interaction on, on um, providing us with all, all this great insight into what's happening. You will hear a lot more on this at ATCE, uh, our annual conference in San Antonio where there will be hundreds of papers uh, presented and, and lots of very good uh, other discussion. We have um, an afternoon on Monday, October 16th, from 2 to 5 p.m., dedicated to special sessions on HSE on sustainability. Uh, Darcy will be part of the first panel on tangible pathway to net zero carbon emission. Wafik will be on the second panel on artificial intelligence as a catalyst to accelerate HSSE objective. They will be joined by industry leaders from the largest operators, Total. I mean, everybody will, will be there um, and it's going to be a fantastic opportunity for you to come and ask more questions. So I look forward to seeing everyone in uh, San Antonio and thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to the SPE podcast. For more content, visit the SPE Energy Stream, the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and review. Join us next time on the SPE Podcast.